including today. So we're, we're getting to the end. There's 13 chapters in the book. Today we're going to be looking at chapter 11, verses 1 to 15. Uh, this is one of the letters that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. Uh, there's a lot to recap about the book, which is just going to be too hard probably to, to encompass into an introduction uh, this late in the game. Uh, but essentially, Paul has been writing to affirm his love to a church that's starting to kind of question his legitimacy as an apostle, as kind of their ex-pastor, pastor emeritus, kind of from afar. Um, and so he is writing to them to affirm his love and to kind of, of course, correct them a bit theologically, not so much to kind of advocate for himself in a prideful way, but just to say your gospel is starting to change. Like you guys are advocating for a flexed muscle version of Christianity that banks on something added to Jesus that is foreign uh, to the concept of God's grace alone being what saves us. And so uh, that's a, kind of a, a mixed or blended, syncretized thing for the Corinthians that I think is foreign to them that Paul's trying to write back and, and again, course correct them theologically. So uh, it's a very contextual letter. Uh, I think I said first service too, this was actually kind of a hard sermon to write on a lot of ways because it's so contextual. Um, by that, I just mean specific to Paul's life, but um, still rich in theology. Uh, I will actually, I'm going to read this today in just a second here in full. We'll actually come back and say a bit more about the context. You know, some of you are just joining us maybe in this series, or it's been a little bit confusing to follow along. Uh, but because it's so, you know, about Paul's heart, uh, it is a very sweet letter. I was talking to someone in between the services who was saying that this whole series has just changed how she views Paul uh, from, uh, you know, someone that she thought was kind of the super apostle uh, to now um, being uh, changed into this uh, very approachable kind of human guy, just like us, saved by grace, um, brags about his weaknesses, if anything, boasts in Christ and many other things as well. So, um, Anyway, let's read this in full to begin. Today we're going to look at this idea of divine jealousy, but many other things too. He starts that way, which is why we're uh, naming the sermon this. But let's um, start by reading the passage, and we'll start here in verse 1, chapter 11, verse 1. So Paul, again, kind of mid-argument here, but he's pouring out his heart to the church. He's saying, I, I wish, Corinthians, you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me. For I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way we have made this plain to you in all things. Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone, for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions of Achaia. And why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. And what I am doing, I'll continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. 
For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it's no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. All right, so a couple of things, just by way of recap and summary. I said a couple of these things before, but Paul is, uh, remember, continuing to affirm his love for the Corinthians, even though they've kind of, some of them have rejected him or questioned his authenticity as a pastor because he's weak and suffers so much. He's also continuing here to address the super apostles, uh, which is kind of a sarcastic term because they're not, they're not really super, but they're coming into this church in Corinth in his absence and downplaying Paul and his teaching, and by doing so, they're starting to teach another gospel altogether. More on that in a minute. But here in verse 1 today, he starts by saying, bear with me in a little foolishness, which might sound kind of odd or out of place for Paul, or maybe kind of hard to understand, but he's essentially just saying that what's going to follow for the rest of this letter is what might appear like me boasting in myself, because I'm going to talk about myself a lot. Because Paul would say fools boast in themselves, uh, but people in their right mind as Christians boast in Christ. But he's going to say that um, to drive home a point, I'm going to talk in hyperbole and talk like a boasting fool. But really, not, he's not boasting so much in his own attributes, but actually in what God has put in him and done for him. And he's even going to continue to boast in his weaknesses, which of course in this series we've been saying is, is a, and seeing is a good gospel thing to do because it puts all of the strength on God. So don't get too hung up on that idea of, of um, saying, Paul saying, bear with me as I talk like a fool for a while. It just means he's going to, that he's just going to talk about himself for a bit, his love for them, his weaknesses, his philosophy of ministry, and the posture that has towards them, the visions he received from God in chapter 12 will come to in future weeks and how he heard the voice of Christ in that, and you know, some other things as well. Um, but in and through all of that, he's um, going to uh, try to legitimize his ministry more, talk about how the gospel is the center of those things, but as he would say again, kind of talk like a fool for a little bit uh, to drive home his point. Kind of a desperate times call for desperate measures uh, kind of thing before he signs off in this letter, um, and so we'll, we'll see more of this in the coming weeks. But Remember our buzz phrase for, for the series has been, or one of the buzz phrases, context set the, sets the stage for theology. So all that's kind of what's going on in Corinth, in the mind of Paul, in history. But that sets the stage for seeing theology and learning and gleaning theological truth. So that's where we'll turn and spend the rest of our time. We'll start with verse 1. And Paul, this one clause here where he says, I feel a divine jealousy for you. So two big, the two biggest words there, of course, are divine and jealousy. This is a godly type of jealousy that flows from love. It's not envious. It's not insecure of Paul to say this or for God to show this. But a type of love that gets upset or even righteously angry when someone else is flirting with your spouse or your boyfriend or girlfriend. But in this imagery, Paul is like a father to the Corinthians. He is like a father in how he, he says here he is presenting them um, to one husband. Christ is the husband. Paul's the father. Paul is like evangelize them and says, I am present, like, an, like a wedding imagery kind of thing. He's presenting them as a pure spotless virgin uh, to Christ because Christ has made them pure through his 
spilt blood. So very similar to how like a father today would walk their daughters down the aisle. Uh, that was a common thing or something like that was common in that culture as well. The father was principally involved in this. And so Paul is saying that's kind of what, I, what I've been like to you. So I feel this divine jealousy for you like, like a father. And in that, Paul is representing God and how he presented the Corinthians to Jesus. And again, Christ being like the spiritual husband. But he also represents God in his jealousy. And that, that is a major biblical theme. It might sound kind of odd, actually, to you, um, depending on where you've come from with jealousy, I guess, uh, in the past. But it's a big theme in the Bible that we don't have time to uncover today. It's its own sermon. But at least understand for today's purposes that divine is linked with jealousy. And so one thing God wants us all to hear through the lens of this passage is, I love you. And I have a divine, jealous love for you in that when you are being enticed away, I'm not passive. I will pursue you. I will follow you up. I will speak and reaffirm my love for you. I won't give up on you. I will have a right kind of anger against the things that are leading you away from me. Because if you think about it, if God didn't have that type of pursuit or anger, it would mean he hates us. It means he at least has a diluted love for us. Uh, but like, uh, like a loving husband who goes and fights for his wife when she's being harmed or abused or flirted with, uh, so is God like that. He's like that to you today if you believe in Jesus Christ. That is part of how your relationship with him is put to words. He has a jealous uh, type of love for you um, that fights your battles. And um, always, every day, not just once when you converted and became a Christian, but every single day, that is, that is what he is, he is like. Have that in mind as we go forward because we're going to come back to that in a little bit to kind of qualify another idea. But let's go back then and look a bit more at the Corinthians' effective theological affair. So he, he's basically using this idea to say that the Corinthians are like a bride who's beginning to be enticed away by another lover. All right, so in verse 3 he says, But I am afraid... That as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. So he's, a lot of you guys know he's alluding to Genesis chapter 3, the very beginning of the Bible and the story there, where Adam and Eve disobey God, they listen to the devil and sever the artery of their relationship with God and each other. But note that Paul here is concerned not just with general temptation, but with Eve-like deception. That's really important to get his argument here and really to understand, the, in a lot of ways, the whole letter. That He's not just saying, I'm worried you're going to be tempted to sin. He's getting much more specific than that. He's saying, I'm worried that this Eve story is going to happen all over again. You, church, as the new Eve, as the second Eve, and Christ as, as Romans 5 says, the second Adam. So again, he's talking in marital terms in one sense, but he's going back and saying, I'm worried this is going to happen again. So if you remember that story in Genesis, God is extremely generous and kind to Adam and Eve by saying they can eat of, they can eat of any of the trees in the garden, especially the tree of life. But there's one tree that's off limits. Remember that tree? Remember what that tree is called? The tree of the knowledge of good and the knowledge of evil. God says, I'm protecting you from that tree. I'm protecting you from eating from the tree of morality, essentially, or from the tree of knowing this distinction 
between good and evil. But that's the tree the devil wants them to eat from, which is also interesting. It should shape the way you think about demonic attack in your life, demonic temptation, because this hasn't stopped. The devil has always wanted humanity to eat from this tree, and so does he want you to eat from this tree. And that's what Adam and Eve do as as our, again, effective um, heads of humanity. They represent us in this way, uh, but they they tragically eat from it. And and so what we essentially see in this story then, um, just to try to summarize, that there's a lot going on, but what we see is not just the story of two people sinning against God, but we see movement in the story. Eve's deception consists of movement. It consists of the movement from simply being with God and that being sufficient for them to sinking their teeth into the knowledge of good and evil. And you might think, well, why is that a bad thing? Why is it so bad to know the difference between good and evil? Why is the tree not called the tree of Satanism or the tree of murder or just the tree of sin? And the answer is in part is because they believe the devil's lie that you can become like God when you eat this fruit. You can know the high things. And when you know morality and believe you're able to do it, why do you need God? You'll at least need him a lot less, right? And that's exactly what happens. Paul Paul then is saying, in light of all these movements going back to the story, in light of all these movements from simple devotion to God, they had God and that was good, that was sufficient. They moved to, we need something more than God. We need to know the difference between good and evil and to work for that and become like God ourselves. So like this movement's happening back in Genesis 3, here in 2 Corinthians, Paul's saying, this is all of our story, but I'm worried that this is really happening all over again in your church. Your Eve-like innocence in the gospel of Jesus Christ alone, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ alone, is being threatened by way of it being added to by these serpent-like, devil-like super-apostles. And to see more on this, we're going to keep going to this next section, which is verse 4. So let me, let me read this again to remind you what it says. Paul then, building on this Eve-like idea in verse 3, he says, For someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaim, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. And so what's happening here is there are people among them who are coming in from outside, or maybe raised up from within, but from outside, who are preaching a different gospel, a different spirit, and even a different Jesus. And what Paul's saying here is, You guys are just putting up with it. No one's challenging that. No one's checking it. No one's calling it out. And so um, that's a problem. So Paul's kind of doing it on their behalf. But here's a big question to think about. I'll throw it out there. We'll answer it. But here's what I think the question this idea elicits is, what kind of preaching do you think the super apostles were bringing? Like, what, what kind of preaching constitutes another Jesus? So... A preaching that Paul is saying, you're hearing another kind of Jesus. Like, what would that preaching, do you think, have sounded like 2,000 years ago in Corinth, but might sound like today as well in different churches here in Minneapolis that maybe you've been to before, or different theologies you might entertain or have heard yourself individually in your own heart? 
And I think what's best to ask to get us to the answer is to ask, well, what do we know from the rest of this letter? Like, what's been going on in this city? What, what has Paul been writing to already? Because he's already brought these guys up before. He's already called them out in different ways, so it's kind of a repeated theme. But what do we know from the rest of the letter? Or even from others of Paul's letters, like Galatians, that might help us answer that question. And, and I think when we do that, the answer is that these super apostles weren't teaching anti-Jesus doctrine so much. So, for example, that Jesus didn't rise from the dead. It wasn't, the, it wasn't the fact that Paul was saying Jesus rose from the dead. Others were coming in saying Jesus did not rise from the dead. That wasn't happening. That's anti-Jesus teaching. Nor were they teaching that, oh, it's okay to sin now. Instead, they were adding to Jesus. They were lumping something on, like, you know, in an appendix kind of way to the gospel, to Jesus Christ himself, the person and work of, of Jesus. So the danger was, it was actually a different form of Christianity. Not an anti-Christian message, at least overtly. It was at the core, but not overtly. So the problem was they were preaching, quote again, another Jesus. Not against Jesus, another fake Jesus, a faux Jesus that didn't really exist. But it sounded a lot like him. And if you think about it, I mean, another sub-question to this would be, well, what is that other Jesus, right? What must it have been or what could it have been? And I was doing a lot of thinking about this this last week, too, because I think there's a couple of answers that we could put in there. But all roads lead back to this being a, a works-based kind of Jesus, a Jesus is not enough Jesus, a Jesus who was more advanced than Paul's Jesus, Jesus. And this is why Genesis 3 is alluded to here in this passage, as well as the devil, as it says here, being described as an angel of light. This is his whole point, his whole argument, is sometimes Satan is beautiful. Sometimes the devil is really... In fact, if we saw the devil, it'd be the most beautiful thing we've ever laid our eyes on, ever. You know, there's no red cape with horns and pitchforks. Like, that's not what he looks like. He's beautiful and so in this but at, at the core he's the worst of beings like who, who's ever lived like angelic beings so how do we know how can we decipher between these two things right how do we know what's at the core paul is trying to raise this in in, in a very nuanced and calculated and careful way because the church is really slipping here and they're really being deceived so the idea then is like the tree of knowledge of good and evil can seem like a good tree to eat from. Isn't it right to know the difference between good and evil? It can seem good. Like angels of light can seem like good angels or can seem beautiful. Like wanting or requiring more than Jesus' grace alone can seem good or seem spiritual. These false teachers seemed right because they were pushing the requirement of outward religious ascetic living and obligatory good works in order to stay saved. That's what 2 Corinthians has been saying. That's what all of these types of parts of Paul's letters say in the New Testament. They were wrong, but they were holding out another Jesus, not an anti-Jesus, but another form of, of him. In uh, the 4th century, um, Pelagius said, 
about this actual verse. He said the false apostles, the super apostles in Paul's day were saying the gospel was merely added to the Old Testament and that it was therefore necessary to go on keeping the law of Moses as before. You see his word added here? That's the whole issue. It's adding law to grace. Uh, If anything, the false teachers were requiring more of Christians, not less. That was one of the red flags that went up, is this type of teaching is requiring more of Christians, whereas Paul is requiring a lot less. Just simple belief in the gospel, but these super apostles were asking a lot more religiously and ascetically of the Corinthian Christians. And they thought, well, that sounds right. I mean, shouldn't we have to do more? Shouldn't we have to respond and pay God back and you know, completely change our lives in every way? And, and Paul's saying, um, Paul saying, no. I mean, the gospel is enough. It's, it's really enough. If you guys have read uh, the book, The Last Battle by, by C.S. Lewis, anybody read this in the, in the Narnia series before, if you have? Um, you, know, you know this, but in the very beginning of that, but starts off by, um, with this interaction between this ape named Shift uh, convincing his lackey of sorts uh, puzzle, the donkey, to wear a lion skin that they happen to find so that he might look like a lion and look specifically like Aslan, who is the lion and who is the Jesus figure in this story, in order to deceive people. And I think that's a great picture of exactly what Paul is talking about here. The threat is a demonic theology disguised as Jesus, adding, not subtracting from him. Because adding law to grace is just this silly. It's as silly as as disguising a donkey in lion skin. It doesn't work. But this is the threat for our day as well. This is where this becomes, I think, extremely relevant for you and I, for our church, as we, in some sense, do battle uh, together today as Christians, as we just prod ahead to the final promised land that awaits us, that Christ is leading us towards in, in one sense that we're already in. Um, as we just live as Christians and as we're poked at by false theologies, the great threat in our day is not God is dead, but God isn't enough. That's the biggest threat. It's not the gospel is dead, it's the gospel isn't enough. You, you need more than the gospel. The threat is adding our goodness to him or the knowledge of good and evil being necessary, like at least in the way that um, we talk about in Genesis 3. Uh, it's required asceticism, better versions of ourselves, impossible to keep commandments. I mean, I don't know if, how much you guys have had these experiences in your life. Some of you have probably had this a lot. Others, maybe not as much, but you will. Um, but one of my versions of it in college was I, I had a good friend who meant well, but he said, Chris, you you need to speak in tongues to be a, a mature, empowered Christian. And he kind of went on and talking about his story about how he really begged God for that and God gave that to him. And then he got rid of his television in his home. And once he didn't watch TV anymore, he was really close to God and very empowered for ministry. And he saw people respond to his gospel, his uh, evangelistic appeals more. And he tied that back to different forms of asceticism. And I'm sitting there just being beat over the head over and over again, feeling every word you're saying, I feel farther and farther and farther and farther from God. And he, he didn't mean that, of course, but this is just like 
Um, and he's still a believer. He's, I love the guy, uh, but he is, um, none of you know him, by the way. <laughs> it's like, I can be careful when I say stuff like this. It's not a high-watch person. Um, this is a long time ago. But um, just saying that that's part of my story. It, it was a very low point in my faith, unnecessarily, uh, because it was Jesus plus something else. You guys see that? Have you had that before, ever? Um, you probably will or you'll hear it, or you might even realize you're hearing it sometimes. That's kind of the dangerous thing, right, is you realize maybe after the fact that I entertained something that was Jesus plus. But the whole Bible is set up to show this. In the, in the very beginning, there were two trees, a tree of life and, and the tree of good and evil. In the very end of the Bible, there's only one tree. It's only the tree of life. It, in other words, the Bible is not the story of a progression through Jesus Christ to be saved in order that we might rightly and in a holy manner eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil as if God wants to graduate us unto that as if Adam and Eve didn't do it right but now we're supposed to as if Jesus came to save you and help you to keep the laws of the Bible that's not the story it's not about self-actualization but instead that you and I would come back down to earth and rest alone in the nail-pierced hands of the Savior, the one who died upon the true tree of life, so you could bear the fruit of his righteousness. That comes, so it comes from him. Life change comes from the tree of life, from the cross, not from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, not from the law or yourself or any such thing. And, and I think this passage is holding out for us afresh as Christians to say, do you believe that or not? In fact, let me put it this way. This statement here, let me just say this, all right? So when you hear this statement, you don't need to do anything to earn or keep God's love. Anything. Do you believe that? Or what's your response when you hear that? Do you say, yeah, that's true, but, and then go on to something else? Well, I think what we need to remember is, and what this passage is saying is there are no yeah buts to the sufficiency of the gospel. There are no qualifying buts to the sufficiency of that statement. There just aren't. And if you think there is, it's possible you're listening to your own super apostles in your life, whether it's social media or other books or pastors or preachers or your own hardened heart. Other Jesuses, and you haven't even realized it. And so what I want to do for the rest of our time is look at this third and final section that talks more about the real Jesus who is all over the words of this passage, especially if you uh, dig just a little bit beneath the surface. All right? So Paul says here, in, uh, or towards the end of the passage, he says, did I commit a, was it wrong for me to humble myself? It's kind of an obvious answer, like, well, no, it wasn't. But he's saying, like, but you guys kind of are acting like it is. But he's saying, was it wrong for me to humble myself so you might be saved and exalted? Was it wrong for me to become weak? Because I preached the gospel to you free of charge, was it wrong for me to do that? In verse 8, he's, he's talking here kind of in a, um, in a uh, hyperbolic way, but he's saying, I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. In verse 9, when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone. So in one sense, Paul's saying, I didn't ask for money when I preached to you. The other super apostles did. They charged uh, for letting the Corinthians hear them preach and teach. 
Uh, they charged a cover fee, essentially. Um, Paul, Paul is saying, I didn't do that. And, but you guys are thinking that it's kind of like this, uh, you get what you pay for kind of idea. Like the super apostles think, well, it must have been better if they're charging money for it. And I haven't heard this extra teaching before. Paul didn't add on to, Paul had more heavenly things to get at. So it seems right. It seems like the angel of light. It seems like the right path. This is the, the, the slippery slope they're taking in, in their minds. But, but Paul is saying in York, and Paul wasn't against churches supporting pastors. He writes in his other letters about the validity and importance and beauty there is in a church supporting pastors. Uh, like in 1 Timothy 5 and in 1 Corinthians uh, 9, I think it is. So those are two of the big places. But he's saying in this case, though, for you guys, I, I bypassed asking for financial support from you. So when I was with you, you would not equate the gospel with payment. That's the idea. I bypassed the support. I got support from other churches so I could go to you and preach the gospel and save you. So you would not equate the gospel with payment. If anything, you'd equate the gospel with freedom, with free of charge. And that leads me to the second layer, which is again the idea that Paul clearly saw himself as a God figure and a Christ figure in relation to the Corinthians. Remember in the first part of this passage when Paul says, I had a father-like role to you, like God. I had a divine jealousy, not just jealousy, but a divine jealousy. In the same way, his philosophy of ministry toward the Corinthians itself resembles different aspects of Christ's character. So by this I mean, it's Jesus, right, who brought his gospel to us free of charge. He saved us free of charge, not based on how good you are, not based on any moralistic payments that you offer him first. We didn't dangle a carrot or entice him or turn his head by being good people. That's not the gospel. So Paul's saying in the same way I had this free ministry philosophy before you, uh, God is like that to us. Like in Romans 7, or Revelation 17, sorry, 22, let the one who's thirsty come, let the one who desires to take from the water of life do so without price. Romans 6, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. You, but you have to ask for it, right, and receive what he's moving towards us with. Matthew 11, Paul says, I didn't burden you, Jesus says that on a higher level. He says, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. I'm not asking anything of you except to believe and receive me and to love other Christians, to love and to repent. Change your mind about me. Change your mind about your life. Turn towards me, right? So his burden is not heavy. The law of the Bible was heavy. It was a yoke that it could not be kept, the Bible says. The Jews say that about it itself in Acts 15. It was too heavy of a yoke. But Jesus is saying, I'm not the law. I come with grace and truth. And my yoke is easy. So where my grace, where the fact that again, unlike the super apostles, Jesus isn't ask, he's asking less of us than other versions of Christianity, right? The, the super apostles are asking a lot of the Christians past the gospel. Paul's not most importantly, Jesus is, is not. In fact, it could also be said about the idea of robbing churches, though, which again is hyperbole, but 
in the spirit of that, it could be said that Christ robbed as well, not from others, but from his own body, the church being like his actual body on earth. He was humbled. He became poor so he could give the riches of his grace to us, right, when, when he died for us. And so I'm going through all this to say and to remind you guys, this is the real reason Paul did all of this. He, he's not bypassing support to be nice, but though he is, I guess it's kind, but instead to express the right things about the gospel to stubborn people who are being charged financially by these other super apostles to hear them preach. That even though he didn't have to, he bypassed support from them, like God saved us, not based on our support of him, but his service to us. So to go at, uh, to end here in verse 11, you know, I like that Paul brings this in to this argument. He says, well, why, why am I doing this? You know, we, we could ask, why are we doing this this morning, right? Why are we talking about this passage? Why is 2 Corinthians 11 in the Bible at all? Well, Paul might be thinking, why am I wasting ink here? Why am I acting this way? Why am I talking this way? Is it because I do not love you? Well, God, uh, God knows I do. Of course I love you. And I think like when we apply that idea to Christ, as though Christ commandeers those words as well and seeing and see ourselves in the place of the Corinthians, what this tells us is we too will question God's love for us all the time. We won't understand it. You know, if we think we have graduated from it, like we fully understand it, that's a sign that we really haven't understood it. And we'll, we'll fail to equate his suffering, especially to his love. We'll look for other ways to attain that love, usually through things that we pay back God with, even though that can't be done. But like Paul to the Corinthians, Jesus will tirelessly work to prove his love to us. And that's the beauty of the gospel every day, right? And this is why the Bible's repetitive. It's because God wants to prove his love. And, and if we ask, how, is he, how is, does he do that? Look to Paul. Like Paul is doing for the Corinthians here, he is reorienting them to his sufferings. So if you ever read Paul and think, well, it's kind of weird that Paul is talking so much about his sufferings to the Corinthians, like he's reminding, look at how much I suffered for you. That's exactly what Christ is doing for us through the pages of the Bible, through communion, right? He's taking us back to the cross and saying, is it because I, I don't love you? No, you guys know I do. Look to the cross. It, Jesus is saying, if I didn't love you, why did I take on a burden for you? Why did I become poor for you? Why was I ripped to shreds on the cross for your sins? Why did I go to war against the devil? If I don't love you, and again, he's, he's, he's owning the words of Paul. These are actually Jesus' words. He's saying, if I didn't love you, why did I suffer for you? I am not these other Jesuses who you keep hearing about. I did not come to take you through a spiritual CrossFit program to become strong in yourself. I, became, I came to replace your acts of righteousness with me. And so um, even this idea when Paul says, or essentially says this, am I talking like a fool? Um, and he'll say this now. Actually, next week he's going to say, I'm, I'm like, he pauses, I'm talking like a madman. I'm like really off my rails now. Because uh, the same theme is going to steamroll in the next few weeks. But with today's passage in mind, am I talking like a fool? 
Are you bearing with me in a little bit of foolishness? Like, I think this, these words, too, belong to Christ ultimately because in one sense, Christ is doing that. Uh, if you remember in 1 Corinthians 1, Paul there, in his first letter to the same church, he says, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Do you see what Paul is doing? It's foolishness to talk about himself and about his suffering and about how much he loves them and how much that's sufficient, right? In the same way, the cross for the world is ridiculous. It doesn't make sense. It's foolish to point to strength outside of ourselves. The world would say, look inside and tap into that strength. It's foolish to say the opposite and to say it over and over again. It's foolish to say that through Jesus' death alone we're saved. It's foolish to say a shepherd lays down his life for one meaningless sheep, and yet that's what he does. It's foolish to lure us away from ourselves, even the good that we do, in order to be saved. That doesn't make sense to worldly religious ideology and philosophy. But the Bible says the cross is foolish. The Bible says, actually, in the next chapter, preaching is foolish. You know, preaching is not TED Talks. Preaching is not self-actualization. Preaching is foolish because we hold up uh, the first century equivalent of an electric chair and say, this is the symbol of our faith. God came to endure that for you and me, and it had to be done. Otherwise, there's no way. Um, compared to worldly wisdom and philosophy, that is just silly, right? And, and again, when we simplify it, when we say that's all that's required, um, Christianity is very, very unique for many reasons, but this is one of the biggest reasons. So because Christian preaching focuses on weakness, not strength, on becoming low, coming back down to earth and not reaching high, it is unique and beautiful, but foolish. And that's what Paul is talking about, foolishness here. Um, he wants to make the church fools again. You know, they're becoming too smart for the faith. They're too smart and good for Jesus. They've forgotten how foolish it is, but how beautifully foolish it is. And so Paul is talking in these terms to get them back. And that's what we need as well. All of you are in different spots, I realize. Um, but, I, but I would just say this, um, that the gospel, well, first of all, if there's a warning in this passage, and there is a big warning, you guys, it is be on guard from your thoughts being led astray from sincere and pure devotion to Jesus Christ alone. So be on guard for temptations to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that are all around us every day in the world, in our hearts. That's the scariest part, right? But all around, poking at us. Um, be on guard. Be on guard for the sake of others. Um, I have really good friends who have gone this route. Um, and left the simplest, simple beauty of grace for the sake of advanced Christianity, which is no Christianity at all. And to this day, they're not following Jesus because of it. Um, be on guard for their sake. Be on guard for your kids' sake. This is a great question for your youth-aged kids to be asking as well. How do you hear that in school or in the world? Um, how is Christianity um, positioned in your life? How is it added to how is Jesus maybe reduced to a teacher rather than uh, a savior? Uh, there are many other things that could be as well.
That's the warning, all right? And, but the gospel is, be on guard, that's the warning, but the gospel is don't worry. Um, I think that all of this is couched within the idea that God has divine jealousy and love for you to remind you that the true believers of Jesus will always persevere. Like, God wants you to know the truth. He's not leaving it to you to figure out on your own. He's constantly through a preacher or through the words of the Bible that you might read audibly in your house or in your mind. That's his voice. And so we can know what the truth is if you know your Bible. Um, but it's, it shouldn't shock us to see so many people fall away from the faith because they don't know this book. If this is the way he speaks, well, of course we're going to add to Jesus because we don't even know what we're talking about. We don't know what the gospel is. And God doesn't speak any other way. And so we're fumbling around in the darkness to pull from what Jesus says at one point to the Pharisees. We're the blind leading the blind. We don't know what we, what we don't know. But to be immersed in the life of the church, to sit under preaching, to take communion, to have friendship in the church, to read the Bible together, uh, to agree in the Lord, as Paul says in Philippians 4, to agree in the gospel and the Lord, is to be oriented on the right path. And God wants that for you. He knows that you can't find it on your own. Like Eve had no hope of resisting that temptation in the garden, we have no hope of understanding without the blinders being lifted up. And so, um, so there is, again, a beautiful warning in the gospel being blended here, kind of mixed up together in this passage. Um, be on guard for other Jesuses uh, that are added to, but the gospel is, you'll be fine. Uh, as long as you stay immersed in the gospel itself, in the life of the church, um, you'll be okay. Keep believing that Jesus is sufficient. He is enough. You don't need to do anything else you can't even. The more you try, the worse things get. The more you try to be good uh, for God, whatever that means, the worse your life will get. It will not get better. It might look more spiritual, but you'll be more prideful, more arrogant, more distanced from God. Come back down to earth and just be okay. Live your life underneath his grace and love. Just live your life. Be free. Just be okay. Like things were okay in the garden, right, before from that fruit. Um, it's okay. You are okay in Jesus. Everything is fine. You are loved sons and daughters of the King because of what he's done for you. Um, is that enough for you or not? Ask yourself that as you leave. Is that sufficient enough for you or, or is it not? Let me pray for us.